Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. folks. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks for listening. I just got off the Skype phone with Ken Brazier to talk about his really fantastic must-read new book, Public Memory in Early China. This came out with the Harvard University Asia Center in 2014. And for anybody interested in manuscript cultures, memory cultures, memorialization, or China, it's an absolute must-read. So I'll keep this short because the interview is fairly extensive, but basically this is a book about the construction, production, and maintenance of identity in early China. And it does it by looking at several key components of identity, name, age, and kinship, and also the media through which those identification components were produced and then maintained both during and then after an individual's life. It's amazing. There are all kinds of translations in the book from primary sources that you'll just get a whisper of in the conversation to come. But I highly recommend this as both a book about early China and about memory, but also as a model for what it can look like to put sort of Western, what we might broadly define and what the book broadly defines as Western modes of thinking about and writing about some of these large categories with early Chinese materials in a way that feels fresh, in a way that is taken on as an analytic problem and opportunity rather than taken for granted, and as a way of generating new sorts of questions. Um, So it's really a model in lots of ways. It's a fantastic book, and it was wonderful, as always, to talk with Ken about his work. I hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. I'm here today to talk with Ken Brazier about his new book, Public Memory in Early China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. Ken, thanks so much for making the time to talk with me today about a book I am really, really excited about. So welcome and thank you. Well, thank you for having me back. Um, yes, so we um, so this book is actually situated within a larger conversation that we've been having that started with a conversation about your previous book. Um, so I'll just kind of introduce the book that we're here to talk about today. This is a book that's about, as you put it early on, a cultural history of identity in early imperial China. Now it explores the relative positioning of that identity within what you call a collect a kind of collective vision of society. And to do so, it looks at three parameters of identity. Those parameters are name, age, and kinship. All these parameters are ways of negotiating what you consider the relative positioning of identity. And then after looking at age and name and kinship, it looks at the media, both tangible and intangible, that were responsible for keeping that identity on the map of Han public memory. So there's a lot going on here. It's really exciting. I think this is potentially a field-changing book, and that's what we're here to talk about. So, Ken, can you start us off um, by just saying a little bit about what brought you to this topic? How did you come to work on this book um, within the larger trajectory of your research, and how did you come also to decide to make a book-length object out of this project? 
Sure. Well, here I have to actually start with a confession, actually, because uh, it may look rather quickly quick that I've uh, uh, came out with another book uh, after three years. But actually, I started this book side by side with my earlier work, Ancestral Memory in Early China. And the two of them, when I was working through this, this larger question of how memory works in early China, I was sort of combing through all of the materials uh, that were available to me. And uh, some of it seemed appropriate for ancestral memory. Some of it seemed appropriate for public memory. And originally, my, my thought was, was to publish the two books together, side by side. But Harvard, my publisher, came back and said, well, you know, it might be kind of difficult to actually find uh, pre-publication reviewers willing to look at such a massive uh, project, and they were completely right about that, and, and, it, and it was to their wisdom that we divided it up and, and put Ancestral Memory out in uh, 2011, and then gave me a, a couple more years to think about uh, public memory, and in the process of, of, of that extra three years, I basically rewrote public memory from scratch uh, to, uh, and so it's it's probably the fruition of about maybe a, a fifteen, maybe even up to eighteen years of work altogether. Now we'll talk about the details in a moment, but um, just because you just mentioned um, the rewriting of the book, were there any major ways that the way you were conceptualizing the book and the work that it was doing transformed from this earlier stage of the project? and the stage now um, of the project after this rewriting? Sure, there were, uh, particularly in ways of, of uh, sort of extracting a clearer uh, schematic, I guess, of what is going on, uh, particularly in Part 5, which we may talk about later on, where I actually bring in three step-by-step ways of associating uh, new ancestors with the old ancestors. That wasn't clear in the original uh, uh, writing at all. Uh, also, I have to admit, I took out a lot of material as well. Really? Yeah, I uh, or, or at least I, I hid the material from the main text and put it into the footnotes or the end notes. Uh, give you example, uh, uh, Western references. Um, you, you'll notice that I do make some Western references, but they are now completely uh, 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 segregated to the beginnings of each part, and uh, I use that as, as sort of a launching off point. Uh, but once you get into, after the introduction of each part, you know, all the Western references completely disappear, and it's simply an early China work from that point on. That wasn't clear in the first book at all, and so there was a lot of cleaning up, a, a lot of tightening of the argument. Great. So let's get right into it. The book is is organized according to five parts, and those parts are introduced with an introduction that looks more broadly at Han memorial culture. So the idea here is that before we can understand the structure of Han public memory, um, which is the larger frame and the larger concern of the book, we need to understand how in the Han memory was more generally understood. So in the Han, what were you thinking of when you thought about memory? And the introduction to the book helps us do this. So it first looks at what we know about early manuscript culture. There's fragmentary evidence, as you um, put in this part of the book, that helps us understand the importance of memorization and memory to that culture. So could you maybe uh, start us off in this part of the book by just kind of introducing what you think is important um, for us to understand and know about that um, culture of memorization or the culture of memory in the Han before we then proceed to the major arguments you're making here. 
Sure. It really is important to realize how much memorization and recitation is sort of part of the, the, the background hum of this entire project. And so I spent about maybe about 50 pages weaving together what little we know about memorization and recitation. That is about who memorized what, uh, when and where they developed their memorization and recitation skills, and, and of course, why they did it. And in this uh, speculative reconstruction, which is based on you know chance references and received texts and also in excavated texts, I, I basically try to establish how lengthy verbatim recall, which is the, the modern anthropological term, how, how lengthy verbatim recall is both uh, an ideal and a uh, practical skill. Uh, it, it's an ideal which you see in lots and lots of anecdotes on recitation skills and impressive uh, length of verbatim recall, impressive feats of memory. Uh, but it's also a practice, and I guess the best way to, to, to explain the practice is to, to, to be explicit about this. Um, the, the, in uh, uh, a particular set of texts uh, that were excav- excavated from uh, Yashan, uh which is uh, these regulations which date to 186 BCE, you, you get these wonderful explicit regulations on the training and testing of officials. And uh, it, it's uh, for, for, for minor officials who, who want to be recruited, they have to demonstrate the ability to, to uh, uh, recall from memory about 5,000 characters worth of text. Uh, and, and, and later on, when you get into Emperor Wu's court, about 50 years later, you, you have people like uh, Gong Sun Hong who... who uh, expand that, and they say that well, we have to you know give preference to those who can actually chant the most, and and so in other words, I don't know. I kind of I kind of think of this 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 is uh, uh, sort of an objective way of of testing your wannabe officials, uh, and if they're really good at memorizing and reciting, they're probably good at other skills as well. And uh, as kind of an aside. Um, Specifically at the at the end of the introduction, I, I speculate uh, that it's possible, you know, that the whole so-called Confucian victory at Emperor Wu's court, you know, may have had little to do with content and more to do with with these well-established recitation skills uh, and and those people who were best placed to actually recite and memorize and therefore fulfill this uh, uh, ability to get into these positions were. Those people who are probably working with Confucian texts because it's so much part of the textual heritage that you memorize and recite these classics. And once they were at court, once they recited, that is, what, what, what they were recited became the educational material for the next generation of youth. And, and after that, that's when you start getting the Confucian trappings and the edits and the memorials and so forth. And, and so it's not so much of a romantic hypothesis that you know, the court was attracted to Confucian virtue or ritual or cosmology. And I think it's probably much more pragmatic uh, but this is just a, a brief speculation that I put at the end of the introduction on formal memory, memorization and, and recitation. But it kind of sets up from that point on what is being memorized, what is being recited. You've got this sort of this background hum of the classics from that point on uh, when you're learning about these heroes in the, in, in the classics. And, and they become kind of like anchor points for the rest of the text, as well as the skills in memorization that, that, that uh, preserve these anchor points. And that's, so that's pretty much what I wanted to get across in the introduction. That's great. Thank you so much. And, and this is also really important. 
I think, in terms of how we understand text and how we understand understand manuscripts um, in this context, because you're also bringing out the point that's related to the argument that you just mentioned about uh, the sort of the importance of the skills demanded of classicists and at court and the relationship of this to this idea of the Confucian victory. I mean, you really emphasize here, at least as I, you know, as I experienced it as a reader, um, the importance that this manuscript culture was also an oral performative culture. And you mm-hmm. suggest that we understand manuscripts um, as performance scripts rather than just as books in the modern sense. And I think that's really important and really illuminating. Um, and I just wanted to mark that something that's happening here because I think it's really, really important for how we understand the history of manuscript and text in this period and more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, so after this introduction, you take us into a series of five parts, each of which explores a particular element of the collective um, and sort of synthetic argument that you're making here. Part one explores how the personal name or the Ming of the infant, the courtesy name of the adolescent or teenager, the posthumous name, and the lineage surname positioned an individual relative to others. So you're making the point here, among many other points, that names are locative markers. They're not labels for individuals, but they are ways of marking relationships between individuals. So just the way we did um, in the introduction, um, could you say a little bit introducing what you take to be um, the kind of important elements of this part before we move on to some specific questions? Sure. Uh, I, I begin part one, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in a Western situatedness, and uh, I, and actually, I make no apologize uh, apologies for that. It, it, it's um, I, I I only allude to the Western perspective at the beginning of each one of these parts, and the emphasis is sort of not to compare and argue for any kind of like you know totalizing meta narrative, which was so often criticized by people like you know Leotard and the postmodernists, but actually just the opposite because I'm I'm really concerned about dragging our own deuterotruths into the uh, early Chinese data. And I suppose I better explain what a deuterotruth is. Uh, <laughs> Maybe, um, yeah. uh, there's a, the, the term goes back to, to uh, uh, Roy Rappaport and I believe Gregory Bateson before him. A deuterotruth is, is um, it's an idea that we hold so dearly that we don't even know that we hold the idea. It's something we've grown up with and become habituated to, and we don't even realize that uh, we are look at the world this particular way. Uh, and and so I start off uh, uh, part one. I actually start off all the parts by by trying to you know explode one of those deuterotruths, mainly so we don't drag it into the material and actually misread the material. And here in part one, what I what I do is I, I, I talk about the fact that we don't actually have a concept of a continuous year count that we just sort of take for granted. Uh, you know, we, we, we have no uh, in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Uh, we, so, you know, there's no equivalent of 1492. And, and, and you know, the interesting thing is that there's not even that many references to durational statements uh, like this happened 500 years ago. I mean, once in a while you get like at the end of Mencius, he says, I live 300 years after Confucius. But those kind of statements are really, really rare. And so you don't have your public memory being shaped using those kinds of tools that we take for granted. Uh, and, inte- and instead, it tends to be, in terms of timing, more of a gujin, more of an antiquity versus what is actually present, bifurcation. 
And that actually affects how we remember uh, uh, people in that bifurcation. That even affects how names actually dot and cluster the public memory. And, and I, I, I think I can demonstrate that uh, uh, here. Um, but, but you're right. We, we, we start by talking about uh, uh, how the personal name or the Ming uh, uh, is a relational marker. But what's interesting about this is is the the, the, the name is the, the the Ming the one that you give the, the infant the child this is actually the most distinctive and the variable of all the names that a person is actually going to have and if the ritual corpus is accurate and that's actually a big if uh, uh, this this name was actually assigned during a ceremony when the infant is indeed formally introduced individually to the family and formally registered with the community and so already you can see the network taking shape around the name. And in fact, according to the rituals, uh, uh, it, it's only when you can uh, prove that interrelationship ability uh, that you can actually begin to assign the name. And I, and I, and I love the image. It's, it's the father inducing the infant to smile. And you know, after three months, if you can do that, and I've talked to many mothers and they say that's about the right time period for that if 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 uh, that that's when i guess you sort of you know it's communication enabled you know it's interrelationship enabled and and uh, oh by the way and i and i love this that 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 notion of being able to in, to induce the smile and then naming it that actually explains a rather enigmatic phrase in the Tao Te Ching as well because there's that phrase that says like an infant who has not yet smiled yeah. in other words that's the nameless state which of course is so much vaunted in Taoism so it's kind of neat how an understanding of names and how they actually work helps us understand the Tao Te Ching even. Uh, so, so you've got the Ming, you've got the personal name, then later you've got the courtesy name. And what's interesting here with the Zi is, is that it's, it's from a much more restricted pool of words. Usually the virtuous names oftentimes are prefaced by one of these restricted sibling rankings, you know, Bo Zhong, uh, Shu and Ji. Uh, and, and not only is it more restricted, but more the pool is more restricted where that is coming from. There are a lot of early Chinese anecdotes on the choice of using either the humble personal name or the, 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 the honorific courtesy name. And that choice, again, speaks to names being locative markers, positional markers. Uh, and it's surprising how many anecdotes there are, and I put a lot of the anecdotes in the book. And then, as you say, at death, we've got the posthumous name. And uh, it's interesting, at, at death, the most variable name, that is the personal name, gets tabooed. And uh, sometimes if you were an official or something like uh, rather high up, you might get the addition of this posthumous name. And, and that's from a very restricted pool, so restricted that you actually have these lists of one to 200 names actually circulating in the Han Dynasty. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And there's a whole lot of ink spilled on, on the particular selections of uh, how they chose that particular posthumous name. And the emphasis is always how the, the, the community around the individual or the superiors over the individual came together after the person died. Uh, uh, and again, it's an act, you know, the act of giving the name is explicitly uh, establishing the community and the individual's uh, uh, relationship to it. And here, I'm going to skip a lot of material and, and go straight to the surnames themselves because this, I think, is the most important uh, uh, positional uh, uh, marker and positional very literally in this case because the surnames themselves uh, were thought to derive 
from uh, geographic locations. And uh, I want to emphasize this because it's highlighted over and over and over again in particularly encomiastic, that is a, a, a eulogistic text. Uh, you know, they would start off by saying so-and-so's forebears came from Guo, Chun, Tsai, Fan, Hu, Huang, Cao, whatever. And they took that region as their name. And, and so what, what, what it's doing, it's, it's placing the lineage in kind of a shared spatial frame that everybody is literally on the same map. And so, you know, I, I, if I know your surname, I have a vision of where you fit relative to my surname. Uh, uh, and, and it, there, are other, there were other attempts as well to take these surnames and actually position them relative to one another. And, and in the Eastern Han, we on the popular level, we only have fragmentary evidence of this, of people who actually criticize the practice. But apparently on the popular level, um, people were taking the five phases and saying that if you multiply the five phases by four seasons and then some other multipliers, you end up getting the hundred surnames, and it all depends on how you shape your mouth when actually saying that name. Uh, and Wang Chong is going, yeah, get, yeah, pull the other one. Yeah, this is stupid. And Wang Fu after him saying the same thing. These are really, really stupid ideas. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, people like Wang Fu are actually developing their own historical ladders, identifying in sequence how, how each surname begins. And so, you know, He's basically making a historical map and putting all the, all the surnames in common with one another. Or there are still other people who are actually literally going up to the stars and saying, you know, we, we, we got the, the Leo surname that is not the uh, imperial uh, surname, but, but uh, Willow. Uh, it's actually a constellation in the stars and in the fire phase, and it streams down, the chi streams down all the way to the present into the dedicatee himself. And so, you know, you, you, you see how people are taking the surnames and, and, and positioning themselves very much relative to one another. And, and to me, let me just finish here. This is this one very uh, uh, poignant example to me. That brings it all home. I was looking at this one particular uh, uh, steely uh, dedicated to a guy by the name of Zhang Qian. And it starts off with this preface sort of listing all the famous Zhangs of history as being part of his pedigree. And, and these, these Zhangs, you can tell from the descriptive language, he's actually gone to the Shiji or the Hanshu, or that is the people who are writing this inscription, and, 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 and pulling the names of the uh, – pulling the Zhangs out of – the Shiji and the Han Shu, uh, and, and listing them in Zhang Qian's pedigree. And so it's not blood, it's, it's, it's name, which is actually drawing them all together. It's, if, it's as if all the Zhangs of history are, are like a river with the Zhang rocks dotting it. Or, you know, history is flowing around these Zhang rocks, or, or I don't know, maybe not a river, or a, a pool of past Zhangs where, you know, of antiquity, uh, which you would compare with, you know, the immediate Zhangs, the, the, the intimate family. Uh, and, and so, you know, in some name content and usage are very useful considerations in positioning people relative to one another, rather than you know, we in the West who, who kind of consider names more like, like distinctive labeling and, and, and separating them from one another. Great. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> sorry, I get excited about this no, stuff. I, I just rattle no, on. No, sorry. <laughs> this is fabulous. This is fabulous. Um, I'll just kind of highlight uh, one of the things that you said because it'll come back again later, um, and I think it's really important here. You talked about, or I think you used the word network, and the mm-hmm. rela- or the metaphor for understanding relationships is a net 
or a network is really strong in this part of the book and continues to be really strong when we start talking about kinship. And so this is not just to sort of highlight for listeners, this idea of a net or a network has analytic force here. It's not just a term that happened to come up in conversation, right? This is really something that's that's doing um, substantive analytic work. So I just wanted to mark that. Okay, so there's a whole lot more going on in that section, but if we keep talking about names, we'll never get to age. So let's get to age, part two of the book. Part two looks closely at the ways that age, just like uh, we looked at in the previous section uh, or in the previous part, part one on names, part two looks at the ways age stood for a kind of social value and hierarchy. So again, this is about relative positioning, right, and the ways that that ultimately generates um, the, uh, the sort of individual within public memory. Now, you start out on this section by introducing a kind of, again, a Western comparison, the idea of the ages of man from Aristotle Mm -hmm. through early modernity. And you go on in this part of the book to kind of propose another way, a kind of early Chinese version of the ages of man, which actually sort of topologically looks really different in really interesting ways. So could you introduce this um, part of the book for us? Sure. Uh Sure. Yeah, you're right. Again, I start with a Western Duder truth, and and here, it, I, I have a lot of fun with this uh, in the classroom because I like to ask my students, you know, if, if you were to draw a line to represent the lifespan, you know, what shape would it be? And inevitably, the students recreate this arc, uh, and indeed, it's been conceived that way for at least a thousand years. Uh, you know, it's it's even built into our language. You know, we talk about being over the hill. Uh, and it's visually depicted in this steps of life. And in fact, uh, I refer to in the book, the, the most recent visual depiction I found was in like 2012. Uh, my, my New Yorker, there was a cartoon, which actually, uh, I think it's called Death's Last, uh, uh, the last PowerPoint. And there's death at the screen pointing to this poor, the, the, the poor viewer. He's, he's, he's actually got this the death in front of him pointing to the very bottom where the ark has has returned back to the bottom and so this is something kind of built into our you know our this becomes one of our deuterotruths and, and you're right i do argue that early china is kind of different um that is there's no shortage of texts describing declining old age uh but the difference is that in early china the texts when they descri- describe the decline they're describing only the physical state and not the social value in the west Sadly, often we conflate the two uh, according to lots of sources, and this isn't my speculation. There's, there's a lot of texts out there which actually talk about how physical and social value uh, in Western history uh, are conflated with one another. But instead, in early China, we don't have this arc. We have this continually rising line passing through death and then continuing to rise as it fades upward. Uh, and, and that's what I end up surveying in, in part two. Uh, I start off in childhood, particularly I, I look at descriptions of children who die prematurely, as well as you know the reduced rituals for their postmortem remembrance, and then uh, very quickly I go on to to adulthood and just give you an example of of what I find fascinating here. Um, there's, there's this notion of what are called minjue, the, the, the commoner grades. And this is something I really find interesting about the Han Dynasty, how we have these 20 ranks, which are spread across all households. Uh, and the bottom eight are, are uh, include all commoners as well. And these often get referenced in excavated documents, you know, so-and-so from X of commoner grade Y, that, you know, they're, they're kind of identity markers. 
And they also get referenced in the received literature, uh, particularly when the emperor issues a promotion to everyone in the empire to mark an enthronement or to declare an heir or uh, Emperor Shren will say something like, good grief, there are all these birds in my courtyard. Obviously, there's some kind of omen going on. Everybody gets promoted. Uh, And I like to give my students a riddle then. You know, if everyone's promoted, well, surely no one's promoted. So what's the purpose of these promotions? And they go home and come back the next day, and usually a few of them get it. Because if you pull back and look at the bigger picture, those people who have lived the longest have actually accumulated the most of these promotions. And so what it ends up being is actually it's a seniority system. Uh, and in public memory, I, I, I chart out you know the distribution and the problems of the system over the course of the Han Dynasty, and I'm not going to detail those here. But it's, I just find it interesting how a seniority system becomes part of the organized social structure. And the same thing is true with old age, uh, both for rituals and, and for regulations. Uh, rituals, it's, it's pretty well established. Everybody talks about how you know we ritually venerate the elderly. Uh, what I'm interested in is, is uh, how we, we – if we look at the excavated documents, how veneration of the elderly is, is mandated and, and structured. Uh, uh, we, we talked about the Zhang Jiashan materials earlier. We can go back to those as, as an example again. Uh, and I, I make these charts in the book uh, uh, where y- you can actually uh, uh, plot uh, age on the x-axis and, and commoner grades on the y-axis. And you can show how the regulations better treat older subjects with higher grades in terms of decreased corvée labor or, or when to terminate that corvée labor or monthly grain allowances or giving them official walking staffs. And, and I mean, that's how detailed you can get with this stuff. Uh, and, and just with those officially bestowed walking staff, there's, there's lots of excavated documents to draw on uh, from, 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 from statistics on how many were bestowed in a particular commandery in 10 BCE. That is, if you, if you look at the uh, Yinwan excavated materials to uh, the, the, the penalties you would incur should you harm someone with, with, with one of these walking staffs. Uh, penalties, by the way, which, which include ex- execution. And those you find like in the, in the uh, materials which survive up in the northwest and around Juyin. Um, and, and that just, all I want to do is, is highlight the court's kind of digitization and affirmation of this social norm of an ever-rising lifeline. And that lifeline leads to an ever-rising death line as well. Uh, skipping through, uh, the, uh, the, the, there's a continuity of this line through the death threshold, and I talk a lot about that in the book, but I'm going to skip that here and just, just talk about that death line ever-rising. Um, people like Dong Zhongshu talk about the imperial line ascending, even though they're becoming more remote uh, and more forgotten, they're still being promoted over the process of this. And, and you see this in the rituals as well. That is, um, the fewer sacrifices go for those who are more distant. But people like Liu Xin explicitly said that, that that rarity actually translates into higher value. And I, I, I guess it's kind of like, you know, 
Christmas is special because it's only once a year, and, and should it be every day, uh, you know, it, it'd become tedious and, and not so special. And I always tell my students about there, there's actually a, 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 a German story by Heinrich Bill called Nicht nur zur Weihnachtszeit, and it's where this family goes mad and they celebrate Christmas every day, and it becomes tedious and horrible. And, 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 and that, that's what kind of like Leo Sheen is talking about with the ancestors. Of course, they're, you know, becoming more and more distant, they're fading in the distance, but they're fading upward into the corporate whole of the lineage. And, uh, you know, of course, filial piety is like that. You know, who's more important, your father or your father's father? Well, it's your father's father, but that father's father is, you know, is more distant, more remote, even though he's more highly ranked. And I find there's interesting parallels here to, to even how a commoner might interact with the officialdom, because those officials with whom you're more intimate in the village or prefecture are the lowest ones, and, and, and the higher officials, you know, you're less intimate, they're, they're literally further away, and the early Chinese texts are very explicit about this, the emperor is the most remote, the most hidden behind walls and behind strings of beads dangling from the cap, and, and hence the emperor is the most shunned, the most spiritual, or the most like heaven, like Tian. And so, in the end, distance is directly proportional to value or to spirituality, and it's inversely proportional to intimacy. And so, all this is about, you know, again, as you say, it's the relative positioning of uh, an individual uh, based on age. Uh, and I can say a lot more about this, but let me just wrap this up with, with, with why I like starting with these Western contrasts, uh, because... Here And this is just a speculation, and I don't answer this question at all, but I find it interesting, you know, when the Western arc ends downward, back to where it began on the Y-axis, the Western tradition then has a resurrection, you know, the Latin for which is to resurge, you know, the line goes up again after a, a point, a moment of death, a, a radical transformation. Well, early China doesn't have that radical transformation, and it just continues upward. Uh, Shunzi said it was, you know, no more than moving house. Uh, it, you know, we, we still feed these ancestors in meals. You know, that's what sacrifices are all about. They're actually continuation of the meals. Uh, and so the question that comes in my mind is, in both cases, does the level of valuation which we place on old age hence dictate our respective conceptions of the afterlife. That is, must the West make up for lost ground via radical transformation at death, resurrection and transcendence? Does early China you know, continue a good thing without the need for radical transformation, resurrection and transcendence? I mean, it's just a question that you become aware of when you look back at the Deuterotrus you're coming from, uh, I have no answer for that question. I have no speculations that I give at all. You know, this is something I just say in like two paragraphs at the very end of it. But I think that's why our consciousness of our situatedness, our Deuterotrus, actually leads to new questions we can ask. That's right. And I think, and I just want to highlight that, and then I'll just move on. And then you can talk about the next one, too. This is great. Um, this is fantastic. Um, but this does come up just as a question, as you mentioned at the end of this part of the book. But I also want to highlight um, the analytic force again of this question, because among other things, what this part of the book is doing is demonstrating, hey, here's why it's actually useful to bring what we might call Western conceptions of, you know, age, for example. Um, 
into dialogue with early Chinese conceptions, not because it needs to be about one conceptually dominating the other, but that by juxtaposing these two things, it actually helps us raise new questions about our material, which right. wouldn't have. And, and that's, you know, I think analytically really important. And it's a really, um, I think, also Im- important, explicit methodological contribution that the book as a whole is making, but that you highlight explicitly at the end of this part. So thank you for that. I thought that was awesome. Yeah, I, I try to do that. The, the reason why I do that is because, to be honest, when a lot of readers, particularly our colleagues in the field, are reading you know, a historical work, and the moment they read a Western reference, you can see the eyes glazing over and yeah. think, oh, gosh, you know, don't make these totalizing meta narratives and, and don't make, you know, say that there's some kind of grander force at work here and things like that. I, you know, I, I sympathize with that. And I, I totally agree. We can't make these totalizing meta narratives. But comparison not only has a useful role, I think comparison has an absolutely fundamental role. We don't have a choice. We, right. we're, we're reading this stuff in English, right. and the very fact that we are using English words, our words actually have particular connotations and extensions that they don't have. The people who are originally writing this stuff in the early Chinese, you know, 2,000 years ago on the other side of the planet, they don't have the same extensions. And so... The, even even just the very fact that we are talking about this stuff in English, we are making comparisons. And so I think we really, really have to be aware of that because if we are not aware of our deuterotruths and our assumptions, we're making a lot of mistakes. <laughs> I, can't, I can't agree more. Um, and also, you know, looking back to um, the beginning of the book and thinking about this book as a, as a complete object and a complete whole whose parts really relate to each other, even just thinking about a word as something that we are reading when you're showing us early in the book, a lot of these texts are also performance scripts. So there's also a kind of translation and comparison, even in reading these as words, you know, like rather than experiencing them as performances. Okay. So part three of the book um, moves us from names and age to kinship. Um, This is about kinship as again, another kind of positioning the self. Now you again um, open up this part of the book by comparing the notion of the Chinese self with um, ideas about Western individualism. And that becomes, again, really, really important to do here in a way that's comparable to um, the work it was doing in the previous parts because we need to kind of undo some of the assumptions we bring to um, understanding and talking about something like the self um, and the individual unit before we can then build them back up again in the context of early China. So you show in this part of the book that in early China, the self is generally understood as being dispersed rather than individuated, kind of like, as you put it here, a knot in a network of relationships. So these images of knots and networks come up again. And you um, mentioned the work of Erica Brinley, Erica Fox Brinley um, here, um, which is also really fantastic. Okay, so you're making the point here, um, among other things, that individuality in early China is about expressing one's role within a network of relationships. And here it also engages with Brinley's work. So can you maybe introduce, um, again, as you've been doing, what you think is most important about this part of the book? And perhaps um, especially about the use of knots and networks to understand what's happening um, in this part of the book. And this, the, the metaphor of a net um, does, I think, a, a really important um, conceptual work once we get to the end of this part of the book. 
Yeah, here I have to. Uh, I, I can breathe a sigh of relief because uh, while I begin parts one and two with sort of my own uh, awareness of you know no continuous year count or this arc of life, when it comes to actually this this uh, not vision of the uh, 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 of the self in early China as relative to our modern conceptions of much more individuated discrete units. Uh, that's not original, uh, and I, as you're right, I talk about Erica, uh, but also uh, I, I cite everyone from A.C. Graham to Holland Ames. Holland Ames actually talk about the matrix self. Um, a lot of people are actually talking about the the the, the, the self as being, uh, as you say, much more dispersed. I like with my students to use this image of that 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 we are a much more of a not in a relationship net in, in in the sense that what makes up the self for me if if I were in early China is my relationship to you, my relationship to my readers, my relationship to my family, my relationship to my students. All those strands come together and sort of construct the self. And so if you remove those strands, you know, the self pretty much dissipates. And so, you know, it's it's much less of a discrete unit uh, uh which you get from the uh Greco-Roman competitive adversarial tradition onward up to even the present day. Uh, and so a lot of people are talking about that already. What I hope to contribute to the conversation in part three is people have talked about that in the past have pretty much been focused on philosophical texts. And I'm kind of interested in whether or not that plays out in early Chinese ritual texts, social practice texts, court politics texts. And for brevity, I, I won't go into detail here, but in, in, in public memory, I describe the rhetoric of, of weakening personal agency, you know, not taking credit for something uh, which starts at the emperor and works all the way down. It's, it's very common. To uh, strengthening interpersonal bonds, uh, dependence relationships, ends up having a kind of a very precise vocabulary that's used over and over again. And I, I spend 15 pages on how women are spliced into the patrilineal nets, still again focusing on the questions of, of, of relative positioning. And, and, and besides splicing, there are other ways that these nets are not static. Um, one of the reasons why I use the, the, the net image is because it works in a lot of different ways. Uh, if you pull up a knot on a net, then the adjacent knots which in this case includes the ancestors, will also rise up, although not quite so high. Uh, for example, the, the dead in early China received sacrifices, the volume of which was officially pegged to the status of the sacrificer. Uh, and you get this in a lot of Han anecdotes that so-and-so receives a promotion, which is followed by an official order to return home and then ascend the tomb mound and make a sacrifice to your ancestors. Now, conversely, when you drag down a knot on the net, you're also dragging down the adjacent knots on that net. And that, again, includes the ancestors, kind of like a, a mutual responsibility system, you know, where five or ten households all had to basically snitch on one another if, if they were, you know, somebody did something wrong. As if, if somebody didn't fess up, uh, the whole five households or ten households will all be dragged down together. You sort of get that uh, uh, in the relationships within families or within recommendation systems. For example, a, a 
I recommend you to office, and if you don't do well in office and you get kicked out of the government, I'm liable to be kicked out as well because you're going to drag me down. Uh, or or in when it comes to sacrifices, crippling punishments uh, will drag down not only the person being punished, but that person is no longer allowed to sacrifice. And there are a lot of stories about that in the, in the Han Dynasty. And so the ancestors themselves also end up starving because that person was, was dragged down. And so part three is all about relative positioning via kinship, uh, via this, this, this networking of the individual in blood and marriage ties. Uh, but as I say, instead of relying on philosophical texts and on the Chinese classics, I'm looking at what I hope are, are, are texts more on the ground, more, you know, in, in practice. But admittedly, you know, there's a lot of speculations here and there's always uh, questions uh, that we just have to leave unanswered. Uh, but at least we can highlight the questions. Thank you so much. Now, once we have these first uh, three parts of the book on name, age, and kinship, then you move us in parts four and five to two parts that look at the tangible and intangible media that preserve these attributes of location, right? Name, age, and kinship within mm-hmm. the public memory. So these are really, really interesting parts, and we'll talk about them a little bit. Now, part four looks at the tangible tools positioning of positioning the self. In the Han, um, you, as you show in this part of the book, um, tangible locators or objects of remembrance, as you put them, um, including calling cards, ancestral tablets, grave stele, commemorative portraits, these were less like markers, you know, in the sense of a Western gravestone, for example, and they were more like maps. And this idea of a map um, or a xiang is a kind of schema, a pattern, is really, really interesting and I think really, really important in this part of the book. So could you, um, as you've been doing so beautifully, introduce for us um, what, um, for you, what's the most important stuff that's happening in part four of the book as you look at these tangible markers or tangible maps um, of locality? Well, I think you've summarized it well. Uh, I want to emphasize in part four that the uh, souvenirs of the past shouldn't be read as markers or symbols indexing absent individuals. You know, they, they, they should be, as you say, be read as maps, uh, preserving what I like to think of as a mapped self tied to others in the public memory. Uh, they identify the pattern of the human connections and associations around that self. And you're right. I, I start with uh, calling cards, um, something we don't know a great deal about, uh, but we're learning more about it's it through really excavations. Cool. Really it cool really stuff. is, yeah. <laughs> uh, because we, we're excavating them, and we're actually finding these in the tombs now. And what we're finding in the tombs actually matches with what with the references that we get in the received literature. Uh, and these calling cards, they, they, they demonstrate the circulation of names beyond the presence of the named. And they were, in fact, uh, distributed by the living community after sacrifices to the dead community. We have texts such as the Simin Yeling, which are very explicit about this. This is an Eastern Han text uh, describing the workings of a uh, fairly high-level uh, farming estate. Uh, and it shows kind of the trafficking I- uh, identity in a physical medium that that 
We worship the ancestors. We're all sitting in order before the organized ordered tablets. And then after that sacrifice is done, we go out into the community and we circulate these calling cards to our uh, formal officials or our teachers or elders of the community and so forth. And so you you have this networking using these physical calling cards. And there are a fair number of anecdotes about these calling cards that, uh, that I try to uh, I- include uh, in part four. But of course, uh, calling cards is just kind of a lesser known example of this. You have a lot of much more well-known examples. Uh, the ancestral shrine itself, uh, not only does it have you know the structure of the lineage housed therein, it was also considered the place to store all the lineage records uh, from posthumous name slips to uh, uh, the actual... Uh, um, uh, records themselves, uh, there's lots of stories about going back and consulting these records, which are stored in the metal archives or the metal coffers of, of, of the ancestral shrine. Uh, and, and then, of course, in that shrine, you've got the ancestral tablets. And, and it's, I like to point out to my students, you know, we, we, if I show them an ancestral tablet, and I have to admit, I have this rather morbid collection of, of Qing Dynasty uh, ancestral tablets in my house. I've got about 200 of them sitting wow. behind me right now. Uh, yeah, it's really a morbid hobby uh, because <laughs> most people, nobody collects these things, but I think they are absolutely beautiful. And, and uh, But they're not really considered sacred anymore because, you know, the, the ancestor's forgotten, it's faded away. And so normally people just throw these things away until they found out that this guy in Portland will buy them. Uh, but, uh, so, uh, but when I show them to my students and I show them an individual one, I, I, I point out that it's not working. Why? Because it actually has to be networked around other tablets that are related to it. And, and in the Han Dynasty, you, you get actual cases where people are manipulating the order of the tablets, uh, put, put, uh, promoting some that didn't deserve promotion, or, or trying to decide uh, which wife or consort to put next to the emperor if the emperor actually had multiple wives. Uh, uh, in sequence or, or multiple consorts at the same time. You know, they're trying to figure out which one to actually come. So there's a lot of politics and negotiating going on here of positioning tablets relative to one another. So you have to see tablets as groups of, of, of these objects put together. And in the inscribed bronzes as well, uh, you know, of course, they're, they're preserving lots of names and showing how they all relate to one another. And, you know, you might think, wait a minute, Ken, inscribed bronzes, that's, that's, that's pre-imperial. That's absolutely true. We do not actually have uh, uh, inscribed uh, bronzes in the Han Dynasty like we did before the Han. But we do have texts from the Han Dynasty that are nostalgically looking back to that process. And so even in the Han, there is a memory of what these inscriptions are supposed to do. And, the, and, and that memory is very explicit about positioning the forebears and then positioning the inscriber relative to those forebears. Uh, and inside the vessels, you would have sacrificial meat. Um, this is something I don't know anybody's worked on. I'm sure somebody has, but, 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 but the actual manner of distributing the meat uh, from uh, it actually tells you who your in group is, who your out group is. If you got the meat, if you didn't get the meat, uh, people were were praised if they were very meticulous in their dis- 
in their distribution of the meat. And this even goes back to Confucius. Confucius did not receive a certain amount of uh, 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 his purport, his cut of the meat, literally his cut of the meat, and he left the state, you know, because it shows that he was no longer he was he was not part of the in group. And so there's lots of anecdotes of. Uh, those who are partaking in sacrificial meat distributions. And this even goes on to, to, to like music and dance performances. Um, there's a, especially in the, in the Imperial halls uh, of the Han dynasty, uh, something I had no idea that existed, but it, it's kind of like musical genetics. You, you, you've got these earlier uh, 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 worship uh, performances uh, to like the Han founder, and then a subsequent important emperor will get his own, which will be a modification of the Han founders. And then an emperor after that will get a modification of that subsequent emperors. And, and, and it's a modification thereof. It's kind of like a musical genetics. And they show how they're all interrelated with one another. But all this has to change in the Eastern Han because all the ancestors get gathered into either an uh, Western Han Shrine or an Eastern Han Shrine, and they actually say that okay, we can't actually use these individuating uh, performances anymore because they're in a communal shrine, and so they actually have to change the music. But it, it just goes to show that even here, there's a consciousness of of networking of who's in and who's out. And of course, on the lower level, you can go out to the cemeteries and and show and 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 look at how uh they are uh, the, the borders are actually manipulated uh ditches uh dug around them we not only have physical evidence we actually have a lot of anecdotal evidence of ditches that were dug both to unite and to divide the grave occupants in particular groupings uh of course a lot more excavated evidence is, is popping up uh and i actually give some diagrams, grave diagrams uh, of, of some recent stuff that's been uh, excavated, like from uh, Wanwu and Kabu. Uh, and inside those stele, uh, sorry, those cemeteries, you get stele. Uh, and the stele, I love the stele, and of course my background is, is epigraphy, and, and, and I, they're, they're very explicit about their goal as to, to forming links among ancestors and connecting up with ancient forebears. They're very explicit uh, that there's this human mapping going on. And then I think the final example I give are portrait groups. Um, and uh, again, this is something that never really occurred to me, but it's, it's, what's important is who you hang with. Uh, and, uh, uh-huh, I see although, what you did there. Yeah, sorry. Uh, actually, uh-huh. you know, that, 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 that isn't even a proper image to use because these are probably murals painted on walls rather than, uh, you know, actual <laughs> hanging scrolls or anything like that. But who, who knows? But, uh, oh, but, but, but. It, it is true because you, you um, uh, Emperor Shen, for example, on the imperial level, he has, uh, if I remember, it was called the, the, the Unicorn Pavilion, which is a part of the Weiyang, uh, Weiyang Palace. Uh, and uh, um, there were debates, there were selection processes of who could actually have their portrait added to the greats who were already positioned within that pavilion, within that gallery. And in the Eastern Han, they look back and say, oh, Emperor Shen was being too selective. Uh, I think Wang Chong actually says, no, Bangu says they're being too selective. Wang Chong says Emperor Shen, uh, his selection process actually affected later generations who were ashamed if their, if their ancestors were not seen hanging in the <laughs> gallery. And so, you know, it mattered to them who was actually grouped with whom. Uh, and, and so those, even just in portrait gatherings uh, uh, it, it's 
it's it's a relativizing act and 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 you're right uh, this is this is a the mapped self this is the the, the, the these uh, physical ways of remembrance these tangible goods I think they're I, I'm just trying to highlight a common theme with all of them that they are preserving a mapped self rather than an individuated self awesome and um, you make the really important point here and, and you've already alluded to it um, that I'll just again emphasize um, and highlight for listeners that even though you're talking about individual objects, meaning here emerges not from individual objects, but from constellations of objects. Right? Mm-hmm. This is about the relationship of these obje- objects and the way that relationship um, kind of produces and maps the self as also a constellation. Pretty you know, it's, it's kind of like the uh, Chinese language itself. If you think about classical Chinese in particular, if you have a Chinese character sitting by itself, it has so many different extensions, you're not really sure what it means, but it's actually defined by how it sits among all of the other characters around it. This is something that Isabel Robinet liked mm-hmm. to emphasize that, you know, when you, the whole thing about reading Chinese is a re- relational process. There's much more of an interrelated, uh, a netted process, even when you're reading classical Chinese. Oh, I'm all about this. I'm all about like constellation as a mode of meaning making. We, we'll, we'll talk about this more later. Maybe we can have a constellation conference. Absolutely. In all of our ample free time, but um, oh yeah. <laughs> so as we come to the end of the book, we come to part five. Um, this is the part of the book that mirroring um, part four looks at the intangible tools of positioning the self. Now you're looking here, what I'm going to do is do something a little bit different um, just in terms of um, respecting your time, not keeping you for another couple of hours, which I easily could do, is just to kind of summarize briefly what's happening here and then ask oh, you a yeah. question about it. So what's happening here is that you look at um, three different kinds of intangible tools that are used to position the self, right? Reduction, um, and, and I'll just, your definition here. Reduction is the filtering out of accidents and detail, reducing a person to his or her core attributes to an essential model. So if reduction is one, the second one is conversion, using the trappings of popular literary and cultural heritage to frame the recent dead. And then we have association, placing the recent dead side by side with venerated figures of antiquity. So reduction, conversion, and that conversion can be textual and pictorial, and association. And you talk about um, this sort of um, con- a convening of kind of dream teams of cultural memory as part of association. Now, in a way that's very different from the other four parts of the book, and you're very explicit about this difference, in this case, you're using a Western analytic frame to produce the analysis of the early Chinese context. So this is really, really different in terms of your use of comparison here. Why use a Western model as the frame of analysis here? What makes this case different? And what can we maybe learn from this um, about how to think about um, how to put these into the, the, how to think about creating this kind of dialogue? Yeah, it, it, this is a, uh, one of the harder parts of the book, actually. Uh, the, the, the framework that, that, that you're running through here, reduction, conversion, and and association, admittedly is my own creation here. But you're right. I'm seeing kind of similar things going on uh, starting in uh, Greco-Roman epitaphs. Uh, and uh, this is the, unlike the previous four parts where I 
start off in contrast. Here I actually do make a comparison because you actually already see reduction in conversion and to a much lesser degree association, even in the Greco-Roman epitaphs. And I try to give lots of examples uh, of that. And uh, you do, and there, there's wonderful literature out there uh, describing how uh, Greco-Roman epitaphs, and there's a lot more of them than there are the Chinese epitaphs, uh, describing how they actually will reduce the dedicatee to this schema, to, to, to this particular form. Um, and, and they then dress them up in, in the uh, uh, Western classics, in, in Homeric imagery and so forth. And so I can't get away from the fact that, you know, there are actual similarities here. So I can't actually say early China is doing something original here. Even in terms of association, uh, I think I quote one Greco-Roman epitaph just near the beginning. Uh, uh, the seven wise ones, this person would become the eighth one. You know, so, so there are joining the dream teams uh, even, even there. Um, and so th- that I find actually striking. Uh, now, why? of course, I'm, I'm very anxious about us trying to argue for a totalizing meta-narrative, but uh, it, it has been argued this is the way memory works. Uh, memory works through filtration and uh, uh, association with others. And this isn't me talking. This is uh, colleagues in the field of, of, of um, psychology who, uh, uh, like Dan Reesberg, uh, who's actually a colleague of mine at Reed College, uh, uh, he has a book out just on this aspect of, of memory and how memory works in the mind. Um, goes all the way back to, to Plato and Aristotle. They actually talk about how the mind works by associating one thing with another, by seeing similarities between X and Y, and then grouping X and Y together. And so here, I guess, in a way, I'm, I'm showing my cards and saying, look, this isn't me. <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't claim originality here, except for this threefold sort of a, a, a schematic of, you know, reduction, conversion, and, and association, which is... which. <laughs> Could very well be wrong anyway. It's a speculation, but but you know the very basis here of remembrance through association. Early China doesn't have the monopoly on that, and there and there may be well, there may be physiological reasons for that. There, it actually may go into uh, how the mind actually works, how the mind actually remembers, and that's why I feel I can't get away and make a contrast. And here I have to actually make a, more of a comparison. And here, I think um, this is a really, um, there is also a conclusion um, that looks at, um, among other things, a kind of contrast with Western or contrast comparison with Western obituaries. Mm, yes. Um, but, uh, but here in part five, one of the things that I really love about ending the five major parts of the book on this note is that you're really putting into practice, at least in, in the way I'm experiencing this part of the book, you're putting into practice meaning making through constellation and juxtaposition here, through relationship making, by bringing together um, the way we understand the kind of physiology and neurology of human memory, the mechan- mechanics of the mind with um, these other literatures, with early Chinese texts in a way that again, kicks up the argument about um, sort of meaning coming out of networks and, and nets and, and maps to another level by really explicitly showing us how to embody that analytically. So I really appreciated that, um, that you're ending on that note. I think it's a really wonderful way to move forward. 
and I'm also trying to make kind of a, 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 a tighter uh, network within the book itself because so much of part five is reliant upon what I was talking about in the introduction because the introduction is about formal memorization, formal recitation, and what was memorized, what was recited actually makes up the population of the public memory to whom we make associations, uh, you know, the, the, the five great advisors, the, uh, the, 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 the two worthy mothers, the, the, uh, the, uh, um, the, the, the great astronomers, the great scholars, they get clustered. They're all pulled from what was memorized in the introduction, but it's the associations in part, part five that, that, that we, we tie the new dead to those old heroes. And so we end up having new old heroes basically. And, and just in, highlighting the importance of that tying together in the structure. It also lets me um, take a moment to praise the structure, the really careful structuring of this book um, more than probably anybody else that I've ever spoken to. And I've done now more than 200 <laughs> interviews. The, um, you are an architect of text in a way that is just astounding. And, and that's something well, that you. comes out of both books and is really um, amazing here. So just the architecture of how you're thinking about the structure of the text um, and how the parts work together to generate a whole that's more than the sum of its parts is really a model here. Okay, so Ken, um, we're at the end of our time, um, but is there anything, of course there's a ton of material in the book that we didn't talk about, right? It's extraordinarily rich study. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Uh, no, I think we've covered all basically what I think are the the big bits bits to it. Um, I'm I'm very grateful to you for 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 letting me sort of rattle on. So that no, that let me whole, uh, no, this is great. that let me actually hit all the big points. And I mean, we've now between public memory in early China and ancestral memory in early China, we've got more than a thousand pages of balderdash and codswallop uh, to to draw upon. So uh, it's all there in in, in two volumes. <laughs> it's it's an amazing. I, I'll just leave that there. I won't comment, but obviously you're downplaying it. So now that these two books are out, um, and congratulations again, it's, it's a monumental achievement, and they're both fantastic. What's next for you? What's on the horizon, and, and what are you working on now? Well, uh, this this is kind of odd because uh, I'm I'm sailing over the horizon to to. Uh, I, I, I'm basically uh, I've pulled up anchor and I'm I'm sailing out of the Han Harbor. Uh, and okay, basically as I see it, I, I, I a goal as as a wannabe scholar, I, I I wanted to actually have like you know a couple works out there of which I am proud. And and I, I'm I, you know I, I downplay the books, but I'm very happy with what I've done. I, and, but it's there. And it's out there, you know, been there, done that. I've got that in the field. And now uh, for something completely different, as I say, on Monty Python, I'm leaving the Han Dynasty uh, and actually leaving early China altogether uh, and working on uh, uh, basically what what started off as a hobby of mine. Uh, And I'm looking at late imperial and even uh, modern conceptions of hell in China. Uh, and it's, it's a project which started off as a hobby uh, and uh, uh, something I, I uh, a course or two that I teach at Reed College. Uh, and my interest isn't this may sound kind of odd, but I'm not even interested in getting out of publication. Uh, I just want to study. I, I want to become a student again. Uh, 
And I've started over. In fact, I, the very first thing I did uh, with my uh, – uh, I'm currently on sabbatical. The very first thing I did on sabbatical was uh, take one of those NEH four-week uh, programs, uh, and it was on Buddhism. And because my Buddhism knowledge, very limited, and I really needed to learn a lot more. And so that got me started looking at you know Buddhist structures. And, of course, I'm interested in – Buddhist notions of hell as they exist in China. So I'm developing more and more of a background. And, and basically, I'm a student again. Uh, and I'm just learning about religion in late imperial China and how it relates specifically to this very colorful topic of, of, of hell. And, you know, if I don't publish anything for 15, 20 years, uh, I don't care. I, as long as I have fun actually studying and learning about uh, this uh, notion of hell. That, that's, that's sort of where I am. That's sort of the stage I'm at in my life right now. It's amazing. And, and I want to, um, publications can take any number of forms, right? And you do actually have a kind of publication already about this, right? I mean, there's a, a really yeah. amazing website that you've created that looks at some of the scrolls that are, I imagine, are relevant to this project, right? And so I'll, Absolutely, I'll, yeah. I'll try to um, put a link to that in the, but, but that is um, just as useful in a lot of ways and probably more so for some people as an academic monograph. And it's an amazing resource to teach with. That is actually where it all started. And the scrolls, I've got about 130 of them online at the moment. And I've got another 50 or so that I haven't got around to uh, uh, photographing. Uh, but, uh, and, I, and I own all these scrolls. I actually have a vault literally in my house. It's about uh, 20 <laughs> feet behind me. The college very kindly bought it for me. And uh, it's, uh, it's in the garage. I couldn't actually fit it in the house. Uh, but uh, I actually uh, uh, store all these in a vault in, in my house. And so... I have this uh, uh, website, uh, and it's, it's a growing collection uh, because I, I, I sent a student to Taiwan last year uh, on, on his summer holiday, and I made him a detective to see if he could actually find artists today who still paint in this genre. And he actually did find one. And, oh, in fact, wow. I, I, I commissioned my own set. I have a new set of my own uh, that I haven't put online yet. Oh, cool. um, and so... Now, you know, this is getting bigger and bigger, and, and, and it's been a hobby. I've had that website up for maybe 10 years now, uh, and um, what happened was uh, uh, University of Washington Press uh, found it, uh, and they actually used some of its art for uh, uh, book covers uh, on the topic of hell. Uh, for example, uh, uh, Will Tadema and Beata Grant uh, have a book out uh, on uh, Escape from Blood Pond Hell, I think it's called. And the uh, art on the cover is actually from the collection. And I've been talking to them, and they were saying, well, you know, Ken, this, this kind of interesting stuff, you're sitting on a gold mine here. <laughs> There's a very, very colorful material. Uh, and let's face it, you know, it's a morbid topic, but it's a morbidly fascinating topic uh, that everybody loves. To, students just, you know, love this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I've, I've actually taught with that website in oh, the Imperial China course. Yeah, no, thank you. And students absolutely love it. I mean, it's it's a full lecture's worth of material, at least, if not like a whole course. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, okay, Ken, so I've kept you long enough. Thank you so much. Um, it's been an amazing time. It's also been a really good time, as usual. Um, congratulations, and best of luck with the Hell Project, and I'll look Thank forward to much. talking with you again. All the best. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>